Thanks for joining us for this episode of Got Your Six, Lads Advice Encounters with me, Gav Topley and friends. I'm joined today by Twiggy. Twiggy's a former Royal Marine and an author. He was diagnosed with a terminal brain tumour three years ago uh, and given 12 to 18 months to live. Uh, he's far exceeded that and is now campaigning for changes to the way that we look at brain cancer research. Twiggy, uh, thanks for joining us mate, and, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, how are you? Really well, mate, really well. Uh, and it's good to finally meet you after the, the COVID spell. <laughs> last week. So I've been speaking uh, a little bit before we met uh, to Alfie from Philly Boots, which is how we were introduced. Uh, and he was telling me, uh, we all know there's a, a bit of animosity, perhaps, I don't know if that's too overstated between the paras and the marines, uh, and a bit of competition going on there. But he said that you sort of bridge that gap. He said, there's no one in the paras that doesn't like you. And there's no one in the marines that doesn't like you. How have you managed to do that? How do you? Uh, how do you? How are you the peacemaker, if you like? And how do you manage to fit into both camps? I think it's because I've spent half my career in a dry service unit down at um, St. Athen. I was there for six years, so a lot of my close friends are paras. Yeah. But then obviously I'm a marine, so a lot of my close friends are marines. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there is that competition. The I don't think it's hatred anymore because obviously. <laughs> As times are going on, especially with units like St. Athen being formed, obviously we're working together more. Yeah. So there's a bit more of an understanding that we need each other and whatnot. So, but yeah, going back to what Alfie said, it's quite funny because the nickname for a Marine is a bootneck. And obviously the lads in the, in the parachute regiment call each other Reg. So during my time at St. Athen, they used to call me a Regneck. That was like my own little thing because I got on with both because I generally just care about soldiering. Is that an ability you've always had, do you think, sort of because you're you are charismatic and personable and, and you know and pretty easy to chat to, is that is that something that, that that you've always found to be the case or is that something that you've developed across your career or is it just sort of part of who you are? I think it's just all right. I like getting on with everyone. Life's too hard and short as it is without making it harder with petty feuds. Completely agree. Yeah. And I think you'll have small-minded paras and small-minded marines that will keep that banner, if you like, alive and take it too far. But realistically, when it comes down to it, we're both good at our individual aspects of what we do within the military. That, that makes sense. Can we start at the beginning? So what? how did you end up in the marines? Growing up, was it something you always wanted to do? Or? Uh, not really. Growing up, I wanted to be a chef, funny enough. Um, and then I didn't really know what the Royal Marines were. Uh, young lad drinking underage in pubs, up to no good. Uh, got in an altercation with someone one night, and one of the locals in the pub said, well, if you think you're so hard, why don't you join the Marines or the Paris? So I went home to my mum and dad and said, I'm going to join the Royal Marines and got laughed at. So I was determined to be a Royal Marine and ended up doing 15 years in it. Wow, okay. So you applied straight away then, there and there, how old were you at the time? What? What was the process? Yeah, so I was 17 going through college, I was doing a public service course, and funny enough, my ex, my lecturer was an ex ordinary, so he kind of was giving me a bit of a steer and training me throughout my, my year at college, and uh, I started the application process, so as soon as I finished my public service course, I went straight down to Lipton for the potential Royal Marines course, was successful, and then started training a couple of months later. And how is it? How is it, How do you find the training? You said to me earlier that you're not really that keen on fizz. No, nah, not really. <laughs> uh, anyone who knows me knows I ain't really into fizz. It's one 
rather hang out on the day than hang out every day. So, just one of those needs to be done. <laughs> so, you don't like fish, you, you thought you'd join one of the, one of the uh, more elite parts of the military that focus on fitness? Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah, make life hard for myself. So, you, you passed your Royal Marine Commando course. Um, where did your career take you then? I went to Fort Lee Commando, went straight out to Afghanistan on my first tour. Herrick 7 where I was up in uh, North Elman and Kajaki. Uh, yeah, so I was thrown in the deep end six weeks out of training straight out there with Charlie Company. With a great group of lads. And so Kajaki did a whole film about that. Yeah, I believe. Hours. Yeah. Um and not a, not a, an easy tour I wouldn't imagine. Uh, well, if there is such a thing as an easy tour. <laughs> I was in the light, so I was just doing whatever I could to uh, not let the lads down. So do you think the, the training sort of prepared you for that or is it more of set the ground running and, and learn for people around you? I do think, yeah, I do think training then, I think there was, you could get away with more then. Like our training teams made things as realistic as possible and drummed it into us that you are going to Afghanistan at the end of this. Mm. So there was always that, not fear, but you knew that what they were telling you, you needed to take on board because it was going live at the end. Mm. And I guess, you know, it sounds like your primary motivation for joining the military was not to go to war, it was to sort of, you've been given a challenge and you wanted to, yeah, and then the next thing you know, you've you've got you know, the real chance of sort of being in, in mortal danger, uh, you know, and, and fighting for the, the lives of yourself and, and the blokes around you. How, how did that feel? Being in that situation, I guess most people will never be in that situation. Can you can you sort of articulate what that was what, what that was like and how you coped with it? Yeah, I mean to be fair, going through raw marine training and the beginning parts of it where it was all physically based, I was always good at running and things like that, but my body weren't that good, so I, I failed a couple of tests, which meant I got back from. But once I got to the second part of training, like the soldiering side of things, I generally started enjoying soldiering, mm -hmm. and then obviously going six weeks out of training straight to Afghanistan, uh, I loved it. Yeah, bad things happen, but I generally really enjoyed it and found my calling, if you like. And then all I wanted to do and my sole focus was doing as many operational tours as I could. And it, it sounds like you did that, you were sort of back and forth between theatres. Yeah, I ended up getting seven tours out in the 15 years that I did in the Marines. So, that sounds pretty exhausting. <laughs> I mean, what, are you back for a reasonably short space of time before you ping back out again? Yeah, but you were still doing exciting things like different courses and that. So it was all, um, yeah, it was sort of like an emotional roller coaster, really, of ups and downs. But there was a purpose to it. Yeah. Like whatever courses you were doing, the end goal was going away again, wherever you was going in, in the world. Mm. And obviously, some of them courses were the ones out in the jungle, the Arctic, mountainous areas, and that. So I enjoyed it. To be honest, mm. I liked all of it. So, given you time again, you at seventeen, somebody somebody says to you, you should join the Prowers of the Marines. Would you would you do it again? Yeah, hundred percent. I don't think I'll do anything differently either. Mm. And so, it sounds like you've been in some pretty sort of tasty situations. You've been blown up more than once. Yeah, I mean, war's not a nice place to go, but I loved the way the lads had each other's backs. Yeah. So even on a bad day, or like the worst day imaginable, where unfortunately you was losing people and people were getting 
superior. It was the way everyone come together. Yep. It was like, yeah, we're we're in trouble here. However, we will get out of it because yep. of the people around you. Mm -hmm. And that, that sort of become addictive, I think. Um, yeah, we, we did have I've had a few bad days, obviously. Especially recently with the last little mishap I was involved in in the Middle East. But yeah, again, I still wouldn't change any of it. Mm. And so, are there any particular sort of times of your career that, that stand out? I know you've, you've written a book and, and they're, they're going to be in that. We'll talk a bit more about that later on in the podcast. But what, what are the sort of the highlights and the lowlights of your career? So it's quite a long career. Yeah, so the highlights were obviously every tour I did have highlights. Low points to go with, i.e., losing friends. I mean, I lost three, three very close friends of mine over a, an 18 month period in Afghanistan. But I still look at that and we all knew what we wanted to do. You know what I mean, so you can't really blame everyone because we was always happy to take that risk to go out there. Um, I'd say probably one of my biggest achievements in my career was um, getting to reunite a uh, young Iraqi girl with her family. They thought she had died and she thought they had died, so that was probably, yeah, I'd say the pinnacle of my career, mm -hmm. reuniting a family. Uh, and then just the general stuff going through some tours I did where I was embedded with foreign, foreign militias and things, militaries, and just seeing how your input was helping them in their fight to take back their own countries. Mm -hmm. But just seeing the locals being happy, you know what I mean, with you pushing the enemy out of, of their village, towns and cities, like it's, it's an achievement. It's a nice feeling when people feel that your efforts were worthwhile. And so in terms of that, I guess, if you're a soldier for a, for a nation state, you don't really get much choice in, in where you're going, what, what the aims and objectives are of that government at that time. And obviously Afghan has gone the way that it's gone how is that for, for someone who's served in those theatres? You know, do you get an attachment to the to the, 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 the mission or the sort of aim that the government sells at the beginning? You know, or is it just a case by case you're dealing with what you're dealing with on that tour? How how do you sort of make sense of all that? My personal opinion, and I know I speak for sort of like my circle of friends yeah. within, within the military. We did it for each other. I mean, the government do whatever they want to do. They've got their agendas on there for the lad to the left and the right of me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Don't get me wrong, I get enjoyment out of seeing the locals because I don't like bullies. Yeah. And I see the enemy as bullies because they come in and they use kids to put suicide vests on them and hide behind them, use them as shields, and I don't like any of that. But ultimately, my aim was to go out there for the lads. No, I think that... that a common thread of all the people I've spoken to that have been in those in those situations is that mm -hmm. it's more about the bonds that you've got with the, with the people around you than, than anything else. Can you speak any more about, you said there's a, you know, a situation with this young girl that was separated from her family. Can you speak any more about that? Yeah, so I'm part of 40 Commando in 2016. Uh, got called in by the Sergeant Major. He was like, oh, can you go away for a couple of months with four other lads? As a second in command of this team, and the task was to look after a civilian rescue boat, which was almost like a floating hospital. And what they were doing is they were operating between Greece and Turkey, and 
rescuing as many people as they could um, who were fleeing ISIS from Iraq and Syria. Because mm-hmm. what they were doing was obviously crossing the border into Turkey, getting onto the beaches, then paying people smugglers a thousand euros per person to stick them on any form of craft that would float. And then they were doing sort of about a two hour sail from Turkey to uh, all the Greek islands in the Aegean Sea. But when the weather turned, obviously a lot of them would capsize or they'd get wooden crafts that get washed onto the rocks and they'd break up. And it was almost like a scene out of Titanic on a regular basis. So we went from doing false protection to we need to really help these people, like everyone needs to dig out here. So we ended up being on the crafts because we had two rigid inflatable speedboats that we could drop in the water from the cranes on, on this hospital ship with the Boss Grace. And then we'd go out and just be pulling people out of the sea and try and save as many people as we could. And on that one particular night, unfortunately, a lot of people perished. And this young Iraqi girl was the only survivor. So the following morning, because this, this incident happened at about one o'clock in the morning, the following morning, about nine, ten o'clock, we were setting sail back to Leros to hand her over and the lost souls on board. And we got a distress call on the way back saying that a handful of people had been washed up on an uninhabited island. So we were like, we'd better get them first because they won't be alive by the time we've gone back, sorted everything out and come back together. And uh, as we rescued them, the first three people on board was her mum, dad and brother. Wow. And uh, they thought she was dead. She thought they were dead. Uh, there was like a really euphoric reunion. It was all caught on a hidden CCTV camera that we didn't know was there. Right, okay. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with that's the highlight of my career. Incredible. I mean, so this young girl is pulled out of a sort of freezing cold ocean. Which, what state was she in at the time she came out? Oh, of the water? Like for me. Pale white. Not a lot of life left in her. Mm. And then, um, yeah, I worked on her for about 20 minutes and managed to bring her back around and rewarm her. And then I'll give her to the real paramedics that obviously had their hands full. And, uh, yeah, it was just one that everyone pulled together and did what they had to do. And obviously we... We managed to reunite a family out of it, which was uh, incredible, incredible scenes. And it sounds a bit like a lot of modesty on your part, because you know, we use language sometimes to describe situations, uh, and it's difficult if you weren't there to sort of imagine what it must have been like. But, you know, if she's coming out of the water in that state, then it must have been quite difficult work to get her around to a situation where she was going to make it. Yeah, I mean, everyone did their part. Everyone had a part of the plan. I mean, there weren't that many of us there, so it was 110 mile an hour. But the team come together and in the two and a bit months we were out there, we managed to save 2,800 people. Wow. So we managed to come home with a, a real sense of achievement. And that weren't, I did this and I did that, that was, we did this and we did that. As a team? Yeah. And that, that goes for the UK border force that was with us, um, the civilian crew, the civilian paramedics, and then us five Marines. That's incredible. I mean, so you're there day in, day out, and essentially what you're having to do is pull bodies out of the water of people who have been fleeing in terror from, from yeah. you know, difficult situations. How do you deal with that? 
Dane, I mean, as again, again, we sort of use words to, that, that might almost, uh, as a coping strategy to, to minimise what went on, but the actual grim reality of what you've been asked to do sounds like something that most people will struggle with. Yeah, and I mean, unfortunately, the team before us, they did some outstanding work out there as well. Uh, unfortunately, most of their team got medically discharged with post-traumatic stress disorder. And you can understand why, but at the same time, the way I look at things, if we wasn't there, a lot more people would have perished. Mm-hmm. So, it sounds, it sounds harsh, but you can't save everyone. No. You just can't, because you need more manpower. You need more shipping. It just wasn't. So we did the best we could do. So as long as you can come home and think, yeah, we give it everything. That's how I do it anyway. Hundred um, percent. I mean, obviously around that time, there's a lot of press reporting. Some of it quite critical of the people who were trying to find that help. Does that affect you when you see that? And you've sort of because obviously these are people who are writing in the abstract about things they've not been up close and personal with, and perhaps in a way that suggests they don't fully understand the situation. Do you, do you... I remember one thing that sticks out in my mind when it was watching Lily Allen on an interview. Uh, it was a video of her crying and apologising for the UK's lack of involvement, and zero help and all that type of stuff. And I thought, on her behalf, that annoyed me because I thought, you have no idea what lads have been up to. Yeah. Like, there's a handful of lads that now have serious mental health problems from what they was doing for that cause. Mm-hmm. For her to just go on air and basically slate the situation that she had no knowledge about whatsoever because there was lads out there helping. And I know that for a fact because I was one of them. So I just, one of them, if you haven't been involved in it, I don't really think you have the right to criticise. Mm. And I guess that's sort of something that doesn't just relate to that situation across your career. There's there's other things that you've done where, for security reasons or, or, or political reasons or whatever, it's not in the public domain. That must be quite frustrating when you see things being written that you know are not factual. Yeah, I'm just going to get into it. As you said, there are a few things that I've done as part of a different unit um, within the military. Still as a Royal Marine, but working more independently but to do them type of jobs you have to you have to take the, the secrecy that goes with it mm. so you don't get the fanfare or you can brag about it mm-hmm. not that you want to brag but yeah there are reasons that things should be kept quiet mm-hmm. but people have their opinions and they just got to let it go over your head for sure so you joined the marines previous point uh, you served a considerable amount of time and then you left as the most decorated Royal Marine. At that lowest rank, I was, I was lucky enough when I was in hospital, uh, the head of the Marines at the time, the call RSM, uh, he came up to see me in hospital with my branch sponsor and they said that I was going to be the first uh, junior rank of the Royal Marines to be honoured with a top table, so, which was a lovely gesture because you have to do 22 years and be over the rank of sergeant for one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't done either at the time, I'd only done 13 years and was a large corporal. So to get that and to celebrate my career with 74 of my closest friends was, uh, yeah, it was special. Decorate, yeah, like 
seven tours and left off a couple of medals, so I was happy with that. <laughs> Still that modesty. <laughs> so, okay, so you, you did all that, that time, you did all those tours, and then your service came to an end. Can you talk us through what, what happened there and, and why that came about? Yeah, so that's quite random. So I was deployed in the Middle East uh, on operations against ISIS. I was the anti-tank advisor for, for the push through this certain area when the team that I was part of got struck with a thermobaric missile. It was actually an American-made anti-tank missile that ISIS had managed to acquire. Um, was flown back to the UK. Uh, obviously, we had a couple of very serious casualties that we got rid of there and then in Kazakhstan. And then the following day, another four of us were medevaced because we were a bit unstable on our feet. Um, the hierarchy and the doctor on the ground wanted us scanned and checked to make sure that there wasn't anything going on. So we flew back to Birmingham Hospital, had some relevant testing, uh, was booked in for an MRI scan. But that was going to take another three and a half, four weeks. Mm. So I said, I wanted to go back into theatre and then book my MRI scan for so I flew back into theatre, did another month on the ground with the lads. This is after getting blown up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Then come back from R and R. And the deal was that I went straight to Birmingham Hospital, had my scan, then went on R and R. Uh, so it was a Wednesday afternoon, I was due to fly back in the theatre the following day on a Thursday afternoon. Got a phone call from uh, the Colonel in the, the medical regiment up there. She was like, you need to be in the hospital at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, don't drive. Okay. So I said to her on the phone, I said, oh, I'm flying back in the theatre tomorrow for an afternoon, so I'll have to see you in a couple of months when I get back. She was like, nah, you'll be here tomorrow, your flight's cancelled. Right. So I had to get my mum to drive me to Birmingham Hospital. Were you worried at that point? I mean, what did you think was going on? Well, the only thing that concerned me was the fact that they said, don't drive. So I thought, oh, maybe I had a little bleed on the brain or something from the blast wave when, when we got hit with that rocket. So I went in for another MRI scan, they pumped me in, and then I got taken from the MRI scanner into a room. And I remember walking in there, it was like walking into the lion's den, there was just a load of people in a hollow square with suits and clipboards and whatnot. And I remember walking in and saying to my mum, I was like, well this doesn't look fucking good, does it? And that was it, they sat me down and said I had a brain tumour. So I was like, alright. Yeah, alright. So they were like, you need brain surgery. So said, all right, well, I'm flying back in the theatre at four o'clock this afternoon. Can we deal with this in three months' time when I get home? I've got my post tour leave. They were like, nah. So what was, what was driving that? Was it that you didn't realise how serious it was? Or was it that you sort of didn't want to admit to yourself that it was serious? Or was it that you wanted to get back to the blokes? What was you thinking around? My main focus was the labs on the ground. Yeah. Finishing what I'd started with them. Yeah. Um, and because I felt all right myself, I didn't really have any symptoms and I was like, well, we'll worry about this in three months' time when I've got a bit of time off. Yeah. But as it, as it was, it was a lot more serious than I thought. And uh, I was obviously withdrawn from that tour, so obviously got half a tour and I didn't, didn't finish that tour, <laughs> so just a half a tour rent. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I went in and had a craniotomy, so they opened up my skull, took part of my brain out, did a biopsy on it, and then... Um, about eight days after my surgery, 
and they called me in and yet again back into the lines then with everyone in clipboards and all that. And they were like, sorry, it's incurable. Right. I went, oh, so I'm terminal. And they went, oh, well, we don't really like to use that word. I said, look, I don't want to be cuddled and wrapped in cotton wool. Just tell it how it is, we'll get on with it. So then they give me the prognosis of 12 to 15 months if I was lucky. And they put me in the prolonging life phase where I had double chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and just basically got blasted. Then it got to December 2019, and that was me out of my prolonging life phase. I was basically told, good luck, you're on your own type thing. Um, so is there any, they've done the biopsy and then it was radiotherapy? No, chemotherapy. Not, no, not any further surgery at, at that point? No, but they guarantee it will come back, it's just a case of when. So I'm in like the grey area at the moment of just living scan to scan. So I have scans every three months. When and if they tell me it's come back, they'll go in line again and we'll start all over again. But for now, about 12 to 15 months, I'm like 18 months past my cell by date. So you've gotten this diagnosis with this prognosis of 12 plus months. What are you thinking? Well, it's just what I don't want to I don't really see what getting down and crying about it's going to do. I'm just wasting energy in my opinion. So. Mm. It was more for me while I'm still here now, so we just keep going until I'm in the box. I was given two years sick leave by the Marines, but yeah, again, that worked for me. So I actually went back to work whilst I'm chemo, just like doing training packages with the lads before they deployed, which right. I think was good for me, still being around the lads. And yeah. Even though I knew I cleaned up away, which was obviously heartbreaking, at least I was with the lads and giving something back. Mm-hmm. And then it got to a point where I was just like, time I'm going to have to leave this behind because I didn't like watching people deploy and I couldn't go with them. Yeah. So, COVID it, uh, I went through the process and then was medically discharged and officially left the Marines on the 27th of December. And so, you, I think I read, I don't know if this is from speaking with Alfie or, or speaking with you, but I've got somebody that you were thinking about you, when you got the diagnosis, we, we, was, do I go travelling, do I do this, do I do that? And you, and, you, and you came to a decision about what you were going to do in terms of in terms of writing the book? Yeah, so that was more of a COVID thing, to be fair, that pushed me into that. Obviously, you sit there and you're like, oh, do I just go and spunk my money on the piss and all this and that? But obviously, I've got kids, so then you've got to think sensibly what you're going to leave them. Mm. And then ultimately, I was like, well, I've got kids that look up to me. I can't just turn into an alcoholic and just booze the last of whatever I've got away. So that was when I went back to work, and when COVID hit and I wasn't on any commitment uh, like within the rotation at work, they were like, just go home and yeah, just be at home and like, shield or self-isolate, whatever they call it. And then I was like, this is boring. So then I put pen and paper and ended up writing a book. Ended up. Are we, are we talking about this before we were sort of speaking? It's like, you know, it, Something I don't know if I could do, and you self-publish, so zero support either. You've you've sort of sat down and 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 pushed through and, and got this book out. That sounds more difficult than 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 you were sort of giving it credit for to me. Was it was it was it a quite an involved process? Did you find it was it useful? Was it cathartic in terms of getting stuff out onto paper that you that you'd been through and experienced, or what was the what was the motivation that kept you get you writing? I quite enjoyed it because I've never really because. Career was so fast paced, I've never actually sat down and thought about what had happened. Mm-hmm. It was just like, right, that's what I was done. 
leave pre-deployment next tour, and that was the cycle through my whole career. So it was more sitting there like, oh yeah, that happened. And then I'd want other people's opinions on it. So I'd end up getting in contact with people that I hadn't spoken to for years and years. And it'd bring us closer together and reminisce on what we'd done. Mm -hmm. And obviously the whole time I'm putting pen to paper. And then 18 months later, I ended up with a, with a book. And I did speak to some publishers, but they told me they couldn't do anything for me for between 18 months to two years. And obviously, even though I won't give in to my diagnosis, mm -hmm. you don't know how long we've got. Mm. So I was like, nah, I've got a manuscript ready. I'm going to have a crack at self-publishing. And so what's the, what's the name of the book? Obviously, we're calling you Twiggy. What, what's, what's the, what have you written it as? Who have you written it as? So Where I've is it available? I've written it myself, and uh, it's called Every Day is a Battle. And that's available on Amazon. On Amazon, brilliant. Because uh, I can imagine, obviously, we, in the in the scope of a podcast, that length of career, we can't talk about everything. Um, I would imagine some of the lads will be wanting to get a hold of that, and they can do that on on Amazon. Yeah. So, what's next for you then? You've 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 come out of the, the Marines. You've you've had this diagnosis, which which you've dealt with remarkably. You've gone well past what the doctors told you was going to happen, and, and you and you appear fit and well. Uh, you've written this book. What's what's on the agenda for you? In an ideal world, hopefully, my aim is to try and break into the motivational speaking world mm -hmm. and try and help people that maybe don't have as much or any support. And just try and show people that no matter how bad things are, if you attack it with a right mindset, good things will come of that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I've got a lot, of, a lot of friends who have gone through this journey with me. So I'm very fortunate with the people I've, I've had around, around me. But you get people that suffer because they don't have that. And yeah. I want to try and show people that it's never over till it's over. Like, no matter how bad you're feeling, mm -hmm. it's never that bad. And how do you get to that mindset? Is this something that you've always had? Is it something that you think is a result of your training in your career? Or where is it? where has it come from? Because obviously not everyone in your situation would deal with it as well as or in the way that you're dealing with it? I think it's always been in me but then I think my career brought it more to the forefront. Mm -hmm. Just never wanted to lose. Mm -hmm. uh, never giving up. I, I, my favourite two words is no surrender. Yeah. That's it. Won't surrender to anything. And that's it really but I look at things from like I was in some quite tasty ambushes in Afghanistan and other countries and I've sat there and thought this is it mm -hmm. and then obviously yeah again with the right mindset of the right people around you we're still in now as me and you were talking yeah and just things like that I mean my book's mainly about overcoming hurdles so from when I was a weasley little recruit who couldn't climb a rope that was the biggest hurdle in my life at the time Fast forward into like going to Afghanistan and watching your friends get blown up and shot. That's the biggest hurdle. So then go into yourself getting blown up. That's another big hurdle. And then obviously the biggest hurdle, the terminal diagnosis, getting told that your life expectancy has been shortened by quite a great deal. And all it is, is however big that hurdle is at the time, you can overcome it. And that's what I'm trying to promote. Sure, and it's like... 
the hurdles have gotten bigger as you've as you've yeah. progressed by then. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's a brilliant approach to have. What advice would you give? You know, obviously on Vlad's advice, we've got about five and a half thousand young men, probably thirty to fifty percent of them are military, so they'll have gone through some of the training, if not, you know, to the level that you have, but are still struggling in, in, in various ways. And we were talking earlier, weren't we, I think, about thing around PTSD and, and access to help and, and that sort of thing. Do you have any any advice or any any views on on you know lads who are struggling, what they ought to be doing to to get themselves into a place where they can see things in the way that you do? I've got views, but yeah, again, they're just my views. So, yeah. Um, I think the big one for me is being with your pals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to start slating like the military and their policy on mental health and things like that, but mm. it's a big beast. Mm-hmm. And you're a small part of that big beast. Yeah. So I'd look for help closer to home. As in the people that are directly around you that know you well enough. Yeah. That ain't just going to look at you as a statistic or a number. Mm-hmm. Talk to your friends. There's nothing wrong with talking. I know I hear a lot of people, oh, I'm a man, I don't do talking. Mm. But it's not like there's nothing wrong with talking. We're talking as we are now. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't really see what the big stigma about talking is. And I, I tend to find when you get with your mates and you start talking, it actually turns into a bit of a laugh yeah. because it brings out every side of your emotions, like the stuff you're struggling with, but there will be things that will be funny about that. Yeah. Just not bottling things up, really. Um, that's all I do. If ever I've got the hump or I have a bad day, I'll speak to my closest friends and chances are they've just had a bad day and then you bring each other out with it. In terms of that perspective thing as well, because I mean, some of the difficulties that you've had to overcome, not that it's any sort of people comparing or competing over difficulties, but these are significant, you know, hurdles to overcome. Do you ever sort of think, well, why me? Why is this happening? Or, or is, it, is it very much more of a pragmatic? Because I know some people that I've spoke to have had that approach of, well, fucking hell, this has happened, this has happened, and it always seems to be me that's having to deal with this shit. Is that something that is just not really your perspective? Or? I don't really like all that thing type stuff. Yeah. It just is what it is, get on with it. Mm-hmm. And the way I look at it is I'd rather have I'd rather have what I've got than any of my family have it. Yeah. I'd rather take that. So in a way, I'm happier it's me, not them. And to be fair, I don't want to go off too soon because I've still got a long, long uphill struggle. But so far, with working with a brain tumour charity and and things like that, Mm -hmm. having a book now, it's almost like this could have done me a little bit of a favour. Yeah. Because I would have had to have left the military at some point. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd bother to do it on my own accord. Yeah. Whereas I was kind of forced. Forced out the military. It's probably the wrong way of looking at it. But I had to leave in the end. Yeah. So it, it almost made me take that jump into the unknown to realise I actually will be alright without the military. So obviously I went straight from education. Yeah. So I had no real life. It was literally college into the, into the court. So I think in a roundabout way, don't get me wrong, I do have bad days, but I've got a book. You know I mean? I've left a legacy for my kids. I'm trying to help people, help with uh, raising awareness about brain tumours, because obviously they only get 1% of the national funding from cancer mm-hmm. budgets. So yeah, I'm quite happy with where things are going, to be fair. And the books are a, a big... 
I think I know a lot of people who want to write a book, but not very many people that have, and I think that's representative of what a hurdle it is. Can you talk a bit about the Brain Tumor uh, Charity? What do, they, what do they do and what sort of work are you doing with them? So it's all about awareness, really. So, as I alluded to a minute ago, the Brain Tumor Charity only gets 1% of funding, mm-hmm. even though it's the most deadly form of cancer. So all you can really do is raise awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they help me promote my book mm-hmm. in like the local media and things like that. The ITV News last week, the Portsmouth local newspaper, and things like that. So by them helping me promote my book, I'm helping them raise awareness about the severity of brain tumours. Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing now, is just trying to raise awareness and show people that whatever prognosis you do get, like, that doesn't necessarily mean you are going to go there. Yes. So have a bit more of a, it's hard to say, because when you get given that devastating news, so you've then got financial worries, worries about your kids, worried about how your family's going to take it, all of that stuff in life, losing your job. But it doesn't mean that, is it? Curtains closed. Mm. Do they give any help or support with that from the medics when you're given that news? And obviously you've then not only got this, this news to contend with yourself, but now you're going to have to go and tell the people that are close to you that if they're not there at the time that you get that news or hospital, which might be... Yeah, it must be a pretty difficult thing in itself. The worst part for me was telling other people. Yeah. Because I'll just get on with it. It's one of them things, oh, yeah. yeah, this ain't too good. And then you tell people, and like, then you've got to watch them being upset. Yeah. I don't really like all that stuff. So that was the worst part for me. But there is help out there. I mean, I, I can use it. Yeah. Uh, but I know there is help there. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to do it in my own way, yeah. which was get me out down and crack on. But the Brain Tumor Charity's out there, and uh, they're very good at helping people. Uh, it's just a case of getting more funding for that side of cancer, because it's the most devastating form. So the only way you can try and combat that is by more funding for more research. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. It's interesting listening to you talk, because obviously you've got a very pragmatic mentality uh, to sort of get your head down and crack on uh, and get it done and if there's a hurdle then get over it or through it yeah. um, but also that, that in many ways is sort of the, the, the way that we construct masculinity and it's kind of you know, a male attitude and a military attitude but also it's interesting to still hear you talk about the importance of connection the importance of you know friends and family around you and being, being able to communicate with them because that's something that's come up over and over again in the group with sort of young lads who are in the military is a difficulty in doing that. Um, partly because they don't want to be seen as being weak, partly because they don't want to be seen, and, and to use their words, as the admin case who is sort of blagging to, to not have to do stuff by. And in, in, in a lot of the time, that reluctance to speak at that time means that when the problem is dealt with, it's a much bigger problem that could have been dealt with much earlier. So I think it's, 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 it's good to hear someone who's been in your position, you know, and doing the things that you've been doing to still talk about being able to talk to people. I mean, what would you say if there were young lads listening to this who are struggling and, and feel unable to, to speak to people? What advice would you give them? I'll try and look at things like a light switch. So when you've got to be that hard aggressive soldier that needs to do what he needs to do, it's on. Mm-hmm. 
and then the second that firefight won or whatever situation is dealt with, dealt with, the light switch goes off and you're just a normal person again. Yeah. So you can be both. Mm-hmm. It hasn't got to be on the odd man 100% of the time. Just be the odd man when you need to be. And when you don't need to be, there's nothing wrong with talking to your pals and, and putting that guard down. It doesn't make you any less of a man or less of a soldier. No. That's how I see it personally anyway. Many of my friends will tell you that. Right? I'm more than happy to cross the line of departure and have a fight with anyone. But at the same time, I'll sit there, have a drink with my pals and talk about things. Yeah. That's the best of both worlds because you ain't popping out. For sure. And in, I think in many ways, actually, it's stronger to be able to have the conversation than to feel like you can't and, 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 and bottle it up. Um, I mean, if you, if you join the military and you know the consequences, like, chances are, in, in, throughout the Iraq and Afghan campaigns, yeah, you're going to have to kill people. You know what your mates get hurt. You might get hurt. You might get killed. If you're hard enough to go and do that in the Middle East and other countries, why aren't you hard enough just to have a conversation? Yeah. It's not about all that stigma. There's ways of doing it. Just because you're talking, it doesn't mean you're weak. You know what I mean? People talk every day. Yeah. I think people make it more of a problem than it is. Like you can turn it into, it doesn't have to be, oh, I'm not feeling too good, can I have a closed door conversation? Mm-hmm. Oh, anyone want to go to a pub tonight? Get a group of you, and then you'll find having a couple of beers and just generally talking will relieve a lot of that pressure of building things up. And a hundred percent, and I know this for a fact, when you start talking, you'll realise that a lot of other people are in that boat as well. Right. Yep. So, yeah, start talking, you'll realise you ain't on your own. Yeah, I think that's that's really good advice. Um, so, in terms of the book. What's the next thing? Is it just pushing it out there for you? Because it sounds like one of your main motivations in life is helping other people or, or being there and being the strong person, you know, where other people perhaps can't. Is that what the motivation was for writing it then? Or? Yeah, now I can't go to war for the UK anymore. I'll just go to war with cancer instead. And do you use any sort of what, social media or, because I'm, I'm thinking now there are a number of people that I know that listen to the podcast who are in the field that you were talking about around sort of public speaking and, and, and getting the message out there. How could people get hold of you if they if they wanted to, to reach out? Well, I'm actually a technology mom. Okay. I'm not really that good <laughs> with social media. However, I do have a Facebook page called Every Day as a Battle After My Book. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I have started that, but as people are telling you, I'm not that good with technology and social media and I don't really like putting myself out there, but I know it has to be done. To help people, so I'm slowly getting there. So the best way to get hold of you is through the through the Facebook page. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, um, we've got a dinner coming up as well at Cambridge for the for the lads' advice thing. So after we get off the podcast, I'll have a chat to you about that. I think Alfie's got some stuff he needs to square away. He may be coming as well. But if you're all free and you and you willing to come and talk at that, that'd be that'd be brilliant. But we can discuss the dates yeah, and yeah, stuff that's fine, afterwards. Just remind Alfie that we do a warfare, not welfare. <laughs> I've sent Alfie a mug. I'm still waiting for a photo with it. But I, I, as I said, we've got one for you as well. We're supposed to bring it. You've driven all the way up to, to Twickenham today, which I'm really grateful for. Uh, and I left the mug in Cambridge. So I'm going to post that onto you. 
Uh, but no, I think definitely stay in contact. I'll put you in touch with some of the people that we spoke about and, and, and let's get this message out there because I think what you've got to say is really important. It's really important that, that people are able to hear it. But no, thanks, Freddie. If anyone is struggling, just get on that Facebook page and um, yeah, you can talk to me. I think that's really, really worthwhile because obviously, you know, sometimes it's, if it's particular things you're struggling with, it's important to have someone that's been in those situations to be able to feel like they might be able to relate. Uh, and, and sometimes those for whatever reason, you might not be able to, to speak to people that have been in that situation. It can be quite isolated. So I think that's really useful. But yeah, brilliant. Thanks ever so much, Twiggy. I'm that's sure fine. this is not the last time we're going to chat. And um, thanks for coming and speaking to us. Uh, I'll stick all your details for the Facebook and stuff underneath in the in the description of the, of the podcast if people get in touch with you. But no, really great to meet you and really appreciate you. You too. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, mate. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Got Your Six, Lads Advice Encounters with me, Gab Topley, and my guest, former Royal Marine and author Rian Islet, better known to his friends as Twiggy. If you've been affected by the topics discussed in today's podcast, you can seek support or find more information at thebraintumorcharity.org. If you'd like to contact Twiggy, you can do so on his Facebook page, Every Day is a Battle. If you'd like to find out more about his journey, you can order his book from Amazon, No Surrender, Every Day is a Battle, Fighting Demons, Jihadis and Terminal Cancer by Rian Islet. As always, if you'd like to contact us, you can do so via the Facebook group, Lads Advice, on Insta, lads underscore advice, on Twitter, advice underscore lads, or by emailing ladsadvice at hotmail.com. If you'd like to support our fundraising for Papyrus Prevention of Young Suicide, you can do so at www.justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash Chaz and Gav smash Kelly. Finally, if you'd like to support the podcast and the group, you can do so at www.patreon.com forward slash Gav Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.